crowdfunding was the moment that really stamped the viability of the project. Once we did that, we knew there are people that want to see this no matter what happens with the story. Jenny. Hi. Hey, Sky. Here we go. Episode seven. It's, I think it's episode eight, actually. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah, it's episode eight. You're right. Season one is just flying by. So flying by. So episode eight. Before we get into that, though, mm-hmm. we have some exciting rough cut news. Bum, bum, bum. We have a new person on our team. Our new bookings producer. His name is George Itzak, and he is a colleague of yours. He is. He works a few floors below me at Nightly News. Yeah, he was a super fan and wanted to help out, and we're so lucky to have him. Part of the plan for Rough Cut now is to not just have VC members, but to have people who are making some really important, timely work outside of the VC sphere, but in the documentary sphere. Not, yeah, not necessarily VC members, but we will still obviously have a lot of VC members. Yes. People who, as you said, are making really important stuff and who we feel like our listeners would really learn from. And one of those people is who we have on today. Mm-hmm. Her name is Rachel Lears. She's a documentary filmmaker. She directed this incredible film called Knock Down the House. It is about four grassroots women candidates in the lead up to the 2018 primaries and one of them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It came out on Netflix on May 1st and I'm pretty excited to have her on. I'm so excited to hear the interview and it's so interesting how I didn't really know what the film was called but I had heard about it. We've all heard a lot of us have heard about this film. It's like the doc with AOC. It's the doc with AOC. It all, it also has it has three other women in it, but it's pretty incredible the access that Rachel got to AOC from the beginning. I mean, there's scenes of her literally working in a bar. Mm, crazy. And one of the things we talk about in this interview is as a documentary filmmaker, how do you know who the right characters are? Like how do you see someone and just know that you can follow them through months and months and months and that their story is going to be interesting and that they're going to keep the audience's attention as a character. Totally. And Rachel, I mean, she vetted a lot of people for this film and she is very skilled at identifying that kind of talent. Right. I mean, who would have known that AOC would would kind of bloom and become the outsized figure that she is today, but it's uh, Rachel really picked the right person. Like I was talking to two filmmakers the other day and they were like, yeah, we're, we're making this, we're making this doc about these people who were really affected by, you know, Hurricane XY and we're really struggling with the idea of how do you, you know, in two years when we finish this feature, how will people want to watch it like how do we know people are going to still be interested when we're creating the story around this one time kind of breaking news event right which is kind of in a sense what Rachel was doing in the beginning not breaking news but I mean the primaries are the primaries yeah I mean and if you're making something like free solo people are going to watch that 10 years from now 
and it's going to be entertaining. But if you're making something about an election, how do you make people care? And how do you how do you make a piece of art that is so tied to the news cycle, but still has to be relevant Mm -hmm. a year later when it comes out? Mm -hmm. Another thing we talk about. I feel like it's also about it's like, how do you pull those kind of universal human themes that that kind of unite us all I guess that's part of it too right but if you as the filmmaker are successful in pulling out those concepts that we all relate to I mean that's where the success of the story is right as well and it seems like Rachel really did that definitely so with all of that said those (laughs) long-winded intro lots to discuss lots to discuss and yeah so maybe we should just get into it this is rough cut Knock Down the House is about political campaigns, and the last film you did, The Hand That Feeds, could also be sort of categorized as a social justice film, as it was about labor campaigns. When you're filming something that is so timely and developing so quickly, how do you know when to stop filming? I mean, I imagine when things are so dynamic, it's hard to be like, okay, time to put down the camera, today's the last day, you know? Well, I think in both cases, there are certain endpoints that you don't necessarily know what the ending, what the exact ending of the film is going to be, but you can sort of see what the end of the campaign is going to be. There, there are things that happen. I like to look at it as like plot and story. So if there's a plot of the sequence of events that happens, and you can kind of see what the beginning and middle and end is, and those are going to be kind of objective. And then the story is the broader human drama of what the characters are going through and that might require some you know rearrangement it can require some additional scenes beyond the specific events of the campaign a lot of times those additional personal scenes get filmed after the campaign has formally concluded because people are so busy you know during the campaigns themselves, whether it's an election or a labor campaign, yeah. that um, it's hard to get them to spend some time with their family and you know yeah. sit down and shoot that sort of stuff. So sometimes you have to shoot it later and mm-hmm. edit it into the film in a different way. So in an interview about the hand that feeds, you said that you try to focus on the characters in these issue-driven films rather than the message that's coming across in the film. I think that's really interesting. Could you explain that a bit more? Both of these projects, The Hand That Feeds and Knock Down the House, started with the idea of following people who were going to be going through something very, uh, in, an intense experience of, of running a campaign, in the first case a labor campaign, and in the second case an electoral campaign. So the, the stories get at political issues, but it's not so much about having an, a preconceived argument of what we want to show or a message that we want to put forward but really um, looking for personal stories where people are going to go through transformative experiences. And at the same time, those experiences will reveal interesting and relevant dynamics of political issues. So to me, it's about making films that really work on multiple levels. Um, So there's a human story that people can relate to no matter where you're coming from politically or, or if maybe you don't even care about politics, there's still um, you know, a, a personal story there. And then the more you're interested and the deeper you look, there are layers of complexity 
of the political context that the film explores. Yeah, yeah. And with Knocked on the House, I mean, can I say that the film ends at the primary election? Is that a spoiler or anything? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... I mean, we all know who wins and who doesn't win. So AOC winning the primary could be seen as the end of the story, but it's also the beginning of so much more because she goes on to win the midterms. And so I imagine it was really tempting to just keep filming her rise into the midterms. And so I wonder why you decided to end the story there. Well, we did continue filming through the general election. And of course, editing, we had to, I mean, what happened with this film was that we made a decision to release the film as quickly as possible, which required editing it as quickly as possible after the primary season ended. And and we had started moving in that direction after the third primary, which was New York. So the Missouri primary happened a few weeks later. And then, you know, we knew that it was going to be really important to strike while the iron was hot and, and get this story out there as quickly as possible. So when you're a small team and you're editing that intensively, there's only so intensively that you can shoot mm-hmm. at the same time. And, and I did cover quite a bit of stuff, but the election night, you know, in, in the case of the New York 14 race, the election night in in November was an amazing night, but it wasn't it wasn't the level of drama of the primary election. And I think it just, you know, there's a there's a kind of internal logic of a project that, that has to emerge and, and as an artist I feel like you have to give some space to the material to tell you what it wants to be. And you know, when the New York primary happened, I remember all kinds of people telling me, Oh, you've got such a great ending now and I was like, But that's not the ending. We have to see what happens in November, you know. But then once we got into the editing room and we realized how powerful it was to end a few days later with um, a really, I think, emotionally and politically deep experience that Alexandria has in DC a few days after her primary. Um, It just felt like we're not going to top that. It, It just felt right to kind of, even though our own cameras didn't actually turn off then, but to, to in the in the in the context of the film, to turn off the cameras when the rest of the world turned on. So it's sort of like the restraint of like, you know, the story of her, you know, becoming a celebrity and all of that. We hint at it a little bit in in the film, but it's it's really a, a different story. And and this film, there's only so much that fits into 90 minutes, and it really felt like there was a an, an elegance to telling the story of the campaign in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring up restraint because you must have had hours of incredible footage of AOC and it just feels like everything she does is gold. I mean, you just kind of want to watch her for hours. So I can imagine in the cutting room, you had some tough decisions to make. Every editing process is hard. I mean, yeah. there's always the, the kill your darlings kind of process of yeah. like losing those those parts that you love. But um, but again, there's an, there's an internal logic that has to happen. And, and you're dealing, you know, not only with what are you going to lose that you love, but what do you not have just because of logistical reasons or funding or legal questions or any number of reasons why you might not have had some of the, you know, specific things that maybe you wish you had. So within that, it's sort of like a collage process of, of you know, we've got our material and there's only so much that we can run out and, and get mm-hmm. at this point. You know, it's a, 
It's a matter of what is going to serve the whole. So there are there are great pieces that are great on their own, and you wouldn't think that we'd leave them out. But in the context of of editing, you know, there's only so many places where an individual scene can go, and if it you know, if it goes here, then it's going to mess up the flow of this other thing. And so it's always, you know, weighing that value of the, the part versus the whole. And so anything that isn't there, mm -hmm. the reason it's not there is because the whole, as the film as a totality, worked better without it, even though that one piece might have been great. Mm, yeah, I mean, those are tough choices to make, though, they because, are. I mean, you want those pieces to see the world someday, right? Yeah, but, but at the same time, you know, I don't know. I guess after making a couple of films, it gets easier. Because yeah. you realize, like, you just get kind of ruthless. It's like, you want the film to be really, really good. And if there's something in it that you love, but you, you get good at recognizing, like, oh, I love this, but it's not really, really good. Mm -hmm. It's not really good the same way the sequence is without it. So That's a tough process, but I think if you can can get to that point of being a little ruthless. Otherwise, every, every film's going to be three hours long. You know? Nobody wants to see that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's also just kind of separating your ego from oh, the yeah, work, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we should talk about the editing because your husband, Robin, edited the film. What is it like to work with your significant other? How do you separate the relationship from the film? That's hard. But um, yeah, so so Robin Blotnick, my, my husband and partner, uh, was the editor of the film, and he was involved from the beginning. There's two things about that that I think really are part of the story of this film. And one is that, you know, we never could have finished this film on this timeline unless we had an editor who was involved from the beginning. You know, when we decided to really pivot towards the edit, in July and August last year. It was a really tight timeline going for the Sundance deadline and, and trying to get everything out in the fall. We couldn't have just hired an editor in August and, and made that deadline a month and a half later. You know, yeah. I mean, not only was he invested in the project and he right. knew the footage and the material and the story, but we have an established way of working together as well. Yeah. So, so that was just a huge part of, of what made this film possible. And I also think that during the production process, so we're a married couple, we have a small child. He's, he's three now. He was eight months old when the film started and, you know, one and two through the course of production. And we were traveling around the country as a family uh, producing this film. And I did most of the shooting. Um, we did have a couple of additional cinematographers in, in New York and Las Vegas for a couple things. But most of it I was shooting and, you know, Robin and our son Max were, were traveling with me. And, uh, you know, he started the edit during, during naps and, you know, after our, our kid went to bed and, and he was, once we finally, you know, switched to the edit when we were in St. Louis, we were able to, we brought my mother-in-law and, and we got a little bit of childcare help there so that he could be editing full time. Um, because at that point, even though we didn't have any more funding, we were, uh, it, the New York primary had happened and we were optimistic that the project could, could move forward in a different way. But, you know, I, I, this film has this great, platform now and it's getting this wide release but I mean, it was a very grassroots project and I don't think that it could have been made in a different way because we didn't have institutional support yeah. at the beginning um, if, if we didn't between the two of us shoot and edit we, we couldn't have done it and this film was funded in a variety of different mm -hmm. ways right yeah. it started out with 
uh, personal funding? Yeah, so we started out <laughs> with no funding. <laughs> so fitting it in between freelance jobs and, uh, and going into debt, unfortunately. And then we had a Kickstarter campaign in March of, of 2018 because it was really getting to the point where we needed external funding to keep going. It was going to be an intense primary season of, of shooting, and we had to, to cover travel expenses as well as you know, our, our own livelihood. And beyond that, we had, we had an, uh, grants and, and donations, large and small. It was very much a labor of love at first, but the, the crowdfunding was the moment that really stamped the viability of the project. Because I think uh, at that point, you know, without having received any grants yet, even though we had for our previous work, crowdfunding becomes the only way that you can test the viability of a concept and, and raise funds quickly. To, to keep going. So once we did that, we knew there are people that want to see this no matter what happens with the yeah. story. Yeah, it seems like a good way to sort of like test interest in the story. Exactly. So you shot most of the film and there are these really intense and incredibly intimate moments in the film with some of the characters. Do you think it was necessary for you to have shot those scenes just because you had a history and had built a relationship with the subjects up to that point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's the style of filmmaking that, that I've been working in for a while now, and it's, it was always the idea of, of this film. When you're working with a small crew, it's you know primarily me alone with the camera. Um, sometimes there would be a sound person and as I said, there were a couple of additional cinematographers, but they would primarily work alone as well. You can fit into small spaces, and you can, you can really build that kind of intimate relationship of trust with your subjects. And so I don't think it would have been possible to fit in some of those spaces and to get some of those moments if we'd had a larger crew. And two, a lot of people asked me at different times, did you just have multiple crews going on? And, um, you know, that, that's a totally legitimate way to film something. We didn't have the budget for that. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, you know, the access was built on those conversations that, that I'd been building with the subjects. And I don't think it really would have worked to just send a crew, completely different crew, to go film all of that. It, yeah. it was very essential to keep it very consistent. Did you have a lot of subjects in mind for this film? And how did you sort of parse through them to narrow down who you actually wanted to feature? The project started when I contacted brand new Congress and Justice Democrats about their plan to recruit ordinary working people to run for Congress and to build this grassroots model of campaigning on the national level and, and, and run uh, people all over the country who would be supporting each other through the process. And so through them, I got into contact with all of these candidates, um, actually started talking with Alexandria and Corey before they had uh, declared their candidacies. And, um, and it took a little bit of time to, to narrow down exactly who was going to be involved. There were probably about 70 candidates. And I talked to a couple dozen of them um, on the phone or in person. And I was really looking for people who had very compelling personal stories behind why they were going to be running for office. Because I didn't want to make just a campaign film. I mean, that's been done. You know, everybody pretty much knows a, kind of what a campaign looks like. Um, that, that wasn't the point of this, to show a, a campaign. <laughs> uh, the point was to show 
what it looks like when a regular person has to find that power within themselves to challenge political machines and to, to build a different kind of grassroots power in the community to create a new kind of representation in politics. And, um, and that really was going to be sustained, I felt, by people who had very personal reasons for doing it. And we also needed, you know, that was because we didn't know what was going to happen. We needed to make sure these stories would be compelling to watch, win or lose. And so having that really personal motivation was a huge part of it. And I mean, beyond their personal motivations to run, they also are just incredibly engaging, entertaining people to watch. Exactly. That's a huge part of it. I mean, that's (laughs) what I mean. It's not just, so their personal stories and their personalities, the way they talk, um, and, and the dynamics of their races as well. We did want to explore political machines. We did want to explore, you know, outsiders challenging very entrenched incumbents or, or, or systems in, in the geographic areas where they were. And we wanted, a, you know, within the project started out being about political outsiders generally, pretty quickly became about women. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we decided to focus on women. And because there was this wave of, of women running, and it was a historic moment. And within that, we definitely wanted to cover a diversity of experiences and viewpoints and geographical areas and issue areas and all of that. So it just all of those pieces kind of gravitated towards one another with these four. Hmm. Well, you definitely lucked out because they're all super engaging. Well, it's not all luck. It's partly luck. I will completely <laughs> acknowledge that. But it is all the casting process really is a lot of work. And mm-hmm. I think that... It's a huge part of the documentary process that often goes uh, unacknowledged. It's, it's sort of like, oh, you made this documentary about this subject. <laughs> They're so interesting. So your documentary is interesting. And, but actually, the, the process of picking who you're going to make a documentary about should be a very important part of the process because it's, it's going to be what sustains everything. much for listening. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Our theme music is by Zach Wright. Our design is by Adam Glucksman. The podcast is co-produced by Sky Dillard Robbins, who's the founder and executive director of the Video Consortium. And all of our guests and the people who made this podcast happen are in the Video Consortium. And for the filmmakers who are listening, we'd love for you to check us out and maybe join. So the Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's top nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're all based throughout the world, but we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Paris, and a bunch more coming soon. You can visit us at videoconsortium.com and find us on all of the social things. And if you're in one of our chapter cities and want to attend an upcoming monthly gathering, which are secret parties slash screenings of sorts, just shoot us an email info at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, you can visit roughcutpodcast.com and maybe shoot us a note. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.